Well, this morning we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 to 19. So if you have your Bibles, devices, always let me encourage you to have uh, your Bibles open before you. We're always going to have stuff up on screens, but it's helpful for you uh, to have it open uh, in front of you as well. And as we jump into the text here this morning, uh, I want to share with you something I read this week by N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is a theologian at the time of writing the book, Uh, that I was reading, he lived in England, and and there was a royal death, or there was a death in the royal family uh, during that time, I guess this, uh, given when it was published, it was about the time of Princess Diana. And uh, as with most events that happen with the royal family, the question always comes up of why does the royal family exist, right? If there's parliament, if there's prime ministers there, uh, why does the royal family exist? And I would say that question has come up in our time with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. You go, hey, what, what, you know, what do they do? What's the point? Uh, one commentator said this, and I thought he framed it beautifully. He said, um, the, the role of the royal family is all about public service. It's about certain people being set aside for what they might otherwise have chosen to do with their lives and commissioned to work tirelessly to hold together the nation, to build up its life, to establish and maintain justice and mercy, wisdom and truth throughout the land. And isn't that just a beautiful picture of leadership and service and and, and what at least the purest form of the royal family is? Now, here's the fascinating part, is as we approach God's Word, God actually set up all authority structures to operate in that exact same way. In fact, as we uh, roll through Scripture, Romans 13, 4, uh, that is a passage where God is unpacking government and and what it is and, and why it exists, and I would just encourage us in an election year to own Romans 12, 13, and 14. It is just such a pertinent section of Scripture for us to know what does it look like to honor Christ with our lives in this insane sort of season. But, but here's just one snippet of how God set forth government to exist. He's talking about the establishment of authority, and this one line, he says, really sums up uh, all of it, where he says he, and it's talking about the one in authority, is God's servant for your good. The person in power is put there to be God's servant for the good of those who they're in power over. There's one gem hidden in the book of 2 Samuel as it pertains to uh, leadership. It's one of my favorite, I will call it a leadership passage. If you're doing a study on how does the Bible talk about leadership, David on his deathbed writes this. He was the king uh, in Israel, and I just love how he frames this picture of authority rightly used. He says, the God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men or mankind, ruling in the fear of God, listen to this picture, sit in this picture for a second. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. That's the picture of power rightly used. I said it during the call to worship, but power is the ability to influence others' behavior or a course of events. To the ability to influence one's behavior or the course of events. And and here's what I would just say. Scripture shows us time and time again is that God's construct for those who have power is to be His servant for the good of those we have power over. Now, there's some of you who are kind of glazing over and you're like, "Uh, I don't have any power. 
right? So I'm just going to do Sudoku or play Brawl Stars or text or do something different while you preach, but hang in there. Now, let me give you two forms of power that we see in our world. The first is formal power, right? This may be government en- entities, right? Uh, this could be uh, in the household, things like parents with children, right? That's a pretty formal sense of power and roles there. You also have things like bosses and managers at work. You have uh, organization of authority structures in the church with elders and, and teachers and home group leaders and deacons and, and deaconesses and things of that nature. You also have teachers, right, in the schools. There's also informal power that we see throughout Scripture and, or, or throughout our world, and, and, and here's how this can be framed. Think about your group of friends who you hang out with. In a group of friends, you know that there's often some form of power structure, a pecking order. There's the alphas in the group, or at least during certain things, uh, individuals might wield power over others. In, sibling, in, in groups of siblings, there's, there's power structures, informal power. I would say there's informal power in our giftedness, right? For those who um, uh, have gifts such as writing or creating beauty like music, or, or, or painting, or, or things of that nature. There's power in that to influence. Those of us who have physical beauty, there is a lot of power in that, a lot. Finders has a category that I love called woo, winning others over. You know, you know those people who uh, are effervescent and they can win others. That is a form of informal power. So what we see in our day with everyone who has power is that it is wielded perfectly so that they serve God and use it for the good of others, right? Isn't that how power is used always in our culture today? No. No, it's not. Right? I'm sure there's faces, names that are coming to your mind or your heart as I say that. Maybe it's a politician, and and I say that broadly, right? Across the board. You know what politics is? It's the navigation of power and interest, right? What about the media, right? I guarantee you, uh, on the plaques going into every media organization, be it cable news networks or those who make money off of Twitter and YouTube, the plaque doesn't say, love your neighbor. The plaque probably says something along the lines of, hey, how do we increase our earnings? And it's often by writing clickbait, short-form articles that boomerang, boomerang us back to their site that so fear and keep us coming back. What about in the household? Spouses acting oppressively. What about what we see in our culture? Racism. Some of the buzzwords like toxic masculinity. But then we also see the pendulum swinging. And I read this quote from Scott Sauls a couple of weeks ago where he says, graceless, Christless social justice can be just as destructive as the oppression that they're seeking to undo. Because what happens is, is oftentimes that power just gets shifted and becomes self-serving. There's bullying on playgrounds, online. And if we stop and we're really honest with ourselves, maybe even in the ride over here, there was an outburst of anger to influence others with control, right? To change the outcome quickly. Maybe we manipulated another person already here this morning. Why do these things exist? Well, I would argue it's because the default of the human heart is to use power to serve ourselves rather than others. That's the default of the human heart. 
is to use whatever power we have to serve ourselves and not others. Well, Paul's going to uh, mess with that paradigm, and he's going to point us uh, to the person of Jesus to help us understand how we rightfully wield power in our context. And as we do this, note that we're coming out of what Ron preached on last week, which is really the pinnacle paradox of this entire book, where he's saying, my grace is perfected in your weakness. If you had a title for this whole entire book, it would be, weakness is strength. And so that's where we're coming out of today. So if you have your Bibles, again, 2 Corinthians 12, I'm going to read 11 to 19. So here's what Paul says. Paul said, well, I've been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent another brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Let me pray for us as we get going. Well, Lord, power is such a tricky topic to lean into. Yet it is not something that you stray from in your word, and I am grateful for that. But Lord, as I talk about this, I understand that there is much sensitivity around things that I've already articulated. And so, Holy Spirit, I again just pray that you will guard and protect my words, that the offenses that I bring only have to do with the offense of the gospel. Will you apply your words to our hearts? Will you make us a people and a church who look more and more like you? So we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So here's the context. In verses 11 and 13, you hear some voice inflection that I'm using, uh, especially in the beginning where he talks about a fool, and, and that's intentional. If you go back and you were to study chapter 11, which we uh, weren't able to spend a whole lot of time in, Paul has this crazy and kind of sarcastic dialogue or uh, section where uh, he's saying, okay, I've got to act like a fool for a second and brag on myself because we've got these super apostles saying Paul's not worth listening to. And so that's where this full conversation, a little bit of sarcasm, ekes out of Paul. And what Paul is doing at the end of this letter is he's preparing the church for his third or his next visit. And so he's pushing back against what the super apostles are saying. They're trying to undermine the authority that Paul does actually have as an apostle. And, he's try- and they're trying to say, hey, he was being crafty with some of the stuff he's doing, which I'll talk about here in a minute. And then that was in verse 15 and in verse 19, he's saying he's just trying to defend himself. That's why he's coming just to defend him. He doesn't care about you. He's all about himself. 
And Paul, what he interestingly does, and you'll see in verse 12 where he said, hey, I came among you and I did the signs of an apostle. Whenever Paul uses the term apostle talking about himself, he is, make no mistake, saying, I have a position of authority over the churches that God has given me to plant and to oversee. Now, I say that because we live in a culture where we oftentimes view all power as bad, and it's because we've seen the abuse of it, right? So in a way, it makes total sense. Uh, There's a Latin term that I won't butcher, but, but it also says the abuse of a thing doesn't negate its proper use, and what Paul is essentially saying is, I am rightfully an apostle and in a place of authority, but he talks about how he's actually using his position of power towards them and saying, I am here to serve you. I'm not here about me. I'm looking to serve you. And so I'm actually, you may see on your bulletin or in your app, two bullet points. I'm actually going to do one today, and hopefully I'll build off of it. Pray I get to do a podcast later this week to unpack verse 19, because I would love to spend some time doing that uh, as well. But one bullet point we're going to look at as we talk about Paul being a person in authority, using that position as Uh, to serve the church that he's coming to, first bullet point is we're going to look at the economy of a servant, how Paul views uh, how the power should be used that he actually has, and that's in verses 11 to 18. And so two uh, kind of bullet points under that. Uh, The first one is then to receive. Second bullet point, it's better to give. Then to receive, it's better to give. And you'll see that I have butchered an idiom Uh, that basically says it's better to give than to receive. I'm going to do it a little bit backwards, but follow along in Scripture as I talk about it. The first bullet point, then to receive. Paul sits here and he goes, hey, um, I actually took some intentional steps not to use you, not to take advantage of my power. There's five words. There's really two words that we're going to look at. The first is the term burden. We'll see it in verse 13, 14, and 16. He starts talking about uh, in verse 14, I myself did not burden you. Uh, In 14, he says, I will not be a burden to you. And then in 16, he said, I myself did not burden you. So here's what's happening with this term burden. Burden here uh, means uh, most pointedly, he said, I didn't become a financial burden to you. I wasn't a freeloader. That's another way that you can uh, describe that word. He said, hey, I I wasn't freeloading off of you. And if you go back to chapter 11, verses 8 and 9, uh, he, in his sarcastic tone, said, hey, I was robbing other churches to support me so I could come to you and not be a burden to you. Here's what Paul was doing. Paul knew he had a hard conversation to have with this church. And as he was coming into it, he wanted to remove all sense of him trying to take advantage of them in any way, shape, or form. Usually how Paul would support himself as he traveled from church to church is he would take up not only an offering, which we talked about back in chapters 8 and 9 for the churches in Jerusalem, but he would take up an offering to support him because he had to eat, right? He had to survive. And what he's saying here is he said, because of the nature of what we were going to talk about, I did not take an offering from you. In fact, I lived off of what the other churches gave you so that there would be no appearance of evil from me. The second term we see is take advantage of in verses 17 and 18. He said, did I take advantage of you? Uh, And then he said, the ones who I sent, did they take advantage of you? And this is essentially a term saying, did I exploit you? Was I being greedy when I came? And the point is, he's saying, no. I literally wanted nothing from you. Now, the super apostles were arguing one of two things. We're not quite sure what it is, but, but one is they were saying he was being crafty, which means he was using his not collecting money from you to manipulate you. 
or they were actually accusing him of, of kind of fleecing them or taking advantage of them in some other way. But Paul is saying, I actually wanted nothing from you. In fact, he gives an illustration that is absolutely beautiful in 14, uh, where he says, children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Now, reading this this week, it kind of stopped me short uh, because I made a joke to my kids here in the last couple of weeks where I was like, hey, I hope you grow up and get a good job because you're my retirement, <laughs> right? Or, hey, you should go cut the grass because that's why parents have kids, right, to do all the work for us. And, and I was joking. You know I was joking, right, when I said that. Yeah, they said, they said they know, so just for the record. Uh, but, but, but parents get this, right? Now, I know there's broken versions of parenting where this is not what we see. But friends, I know so many of you who have spent yourselves, your lives, your money to enable your children to flourish and to thrive. Paul's saying, that is how I'm using my position of power as I come to you. And so this, be- this next section, it's better to give, right? The second part of this economy of the servant. Verse 15, he said, I will most gladly, he says gladly, not reluctantly, but gladly spend and be spent for your souls. The term spend there is a monetary one where he's saying, I I will gladly spend every ounce that I have. You know, the sense I have of this is I used to run the 400 meters and I hate that race and I loved that race all at the same time. The first 300 meters, you know, you're just in your own energy, you're you're doing it, you're making it, you can go as fast as you can. The last 100 meters, like you want to die, really. And usually when I cross the finish line, I'd go and, anyway, I'd puke on the infield. Sorry, I said that in public. I was told in homiletics class never to mention that from the pulpit, alas. But, but that was spending myself, right? And I apologize. Just sorry. Um, it happens. And, uh, and so uh, that, I spent myself. I gave all that I had. And Paul is saying, hey, I was using every last bit of money and myself to spend for the care of you and your souls. In fact, he unpacks it a little bit further. That second term, be spent, is actually different in the Greek. It's, it's, it's a different word. It's used only once here, and it's to be exhausted, and it's the expending of one's life. So it goes beyond the financial. And he says, I literally am laying down my life for you. That is the extent I'm going to care for your souls. The verse that often pops to my mind here, and it's the verse that I call the uh, the most famous marriage passage that uh, I don't get asked to read anymore is out of Ephesians 5. Uh, it's verse 25. The reason it's the one I think I, I am not asked to read anymore is the one before this. It says, wives, submit to your husbands, and that's become anathema in part because um, there has been abuses of power so often uh, in the household and in the world uh, at the hands of man. But what we often do is we stop at power and we miss-sacrifice. So if you keep reading that passage and it talks about the husband's role in marriage, it says, husbands, oh, I missed it. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. That's spending yourself. He's saying, hey, husbands, lay your lives down for your spouse. You see, Paul's idea of what it looks like to be in a position of power trickles through every single book that he writes, including Ephesians, and it goes into the household and into the workplace and wherever it may be, saying, lay your lives down. That is the posture of one who is in power, is being a servant. 
And so in summary, verse 14, what Paul's essentially saying is, is the one in power is not seeking what they can get from that relationship, but what they can give and how they can live, their, lay their lives down for another. So let me talk to a couple groups of people here for a moment as we, as we think through some application. First of all, and I'm very sympathetic to this because I grew up uh, in a situation uh, or at least spent some time where I've seen a lot of my peers who were with me in that season walk away from the faith because they've seen abuses of power, particularly in the church or in Christian organizations. And it does happen often. And so for those who find yourself in that position, let me, let me first say I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And God grieves with you over whatever abuses of power you have seen in the church, outside of the church, the hands of Christians towards other people. And the other thing I would encourage you to do is as you think about the Christian faith, don't look to Christendom, but look to Christ. Christendom which is kind of the, the systems, the organizations that are made up of Christians, will often fail, right? Jesus even says wheat and tares will grow together until he returns. But if we look to Christ, that changes our perspective of the Christian faith. Even Christians must stare at Jesus Christ to change us and to tweak our view of power. See Jesus who spent himself and was spent for you who laid down his life to make you his, not for what he will get out of it, but to give you life. To the church, I think we're in the Christian danger zone right now. And what I mean by that is, in our culture, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but we, as the church of uh, Jesus Christ, have been in a position for a few hundred years, or a couple hundred years, uh, depends on how you're keeping the math here, of being a place of being in the majority, or being in power. And friends, we're just not there anymore as the church. Some would disagree with me. That's okay. But I don't believe we're there anymore. And what I have seen, in part, is the big C church doing what all of us do when we begin to feel powerless is try to hold on to it at all costs. And that's a dangerous place to be because that's when we get angry. That's when we get manipulative. That's when we abuse our power. And a friend wiser than me texted me this week and said, the church, if you read the New Testament, the church does better when it suffers and loses power, right? And that's coming out of what we studied last week. But we're holding on to our power sometimes at all costs. A church and a Christian that is Christ-like is not a church or a Christian that yells louder, but rather is one that lays down our lives, so that others may thrive. And we also say this, as a husband and a father and one that struggles, I think the pandemic is shedding a pretty nasty light on oppression in the home, particularly from husbands and fathers. And brothers, can I just appeal to you that all of us be vigilant over our hearts where we are using others for ourselves instead of creating an environment where there is thriving among our wives and our children. Because as we act oppressively, it is antichrist and it is evil. And we need God's grace to break some of the strongholds of this oppression that we see in the big C church, in the little C church, in our own hearts. 
The only way we can break that is if we understand that whatever power, comfort we get is not achieved. It is received only by the grace of God. And so here's a question that I'd love for you to think about this week. How can we spend ourselves for another person who God has somehow put in a position uh, where we are in power somehow, formal or informal, over another person? How can we spend ourselves for that person or those people this week, like Christ spent himself for us? Let me end with this passage. Matthew 20, Jesus does not stray away from the power conversation. In fact, um, two of his disciples, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, they tend to scuffle a little bit over power. And, and their mom was hanging out with Jesus and the disciples, and she came and sat down with Jesus, and she said, hey, hey, Jesus, I know one day you're going to heaven, and you're going to have chairs on either side of you, and the, the chair on the right is kind of a power position, and I got two kids. They're hanging out with you. I need to know which one's going to sit on your right hand. Which one's going to sit in the position of power? I won't tell them. A mom just needs to know. You know what Jesus says to him? Right before the passage I'm going to read, he says, hey, um, uh, greatness and power, it's not handled in the kingdom of God like it is in the world around us. In fact, if you look at the Gentiles, those are who are outside of the faith, you will see that they lord their authority over others. He says, but in the church, it's not going to be this way. In Ephesians 4, it says, rather speaking the truth... Oh, I'm all off on these. I apologize. Let me skip. Matthew 20... He says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The term ransom means it's a sum of money or something that is paid at great cost for the release of a prisoner. Let me tell you this one quick story. Uh, my wife read this book recently by uh, Marie Monville. Uh, it's called One Light Still Shines. And it's a book uh, that she wrote documenting uh, something that her husband did. Charlie Roberts, in October of 2006, walked into a one-room Amish schoolhouse in Lancaster County and shot ten young Amish girls, killing five of them. In one of the most powerful sections of the book, she talks about the day of his burial and where she was just longing to go and to have an opportunity for her young children to grieve the loss of their father and to grieve herself. And as she pulled up to the small uh, graveside, she looked and she saw a hill full of paparazzi with their telephoto lenses pointed at them and all the guilt and shame of what she was bearing washed over her. As she drove up, she saw this line of Amish men and women come out from behind the barn and form a crescent. And the car drove in between the crescent, it parted, and then it closed behind her. And what they were doing was they were forming a wall between her and the paparazzi to protect her from being uh, viewed so that she could actually grieve. The wall continued to protect her as she walked to the graveside, as they did the graveside service. And she says, in this crescent, she saw faces of grace. She was shielded by love, by sacrifice, by unmerited favor. God was protecting us with a wall of grace. She said, them standing between me and photographers actually came at a great cost for them. Because if you know anything about the Amish, they hate being photographed because they believe it's creating a graven image. Afterwards, she was greeted first by Mrs. Miller, who's, uh, who her husband 
shot and killed two of her children. And she said, I am so sorry for your loss. And we forgive your husband. And we love you. And one after the other, this wall came forward as the parents of these girls who were killed or injured in this incident. And this is what Monville says. She said, I have never been so emptied and I have never been so filled. You see, it's a funny thing about power. In that schoolhouse that day, Charlie Roberts had power, and he abused it in the most hideous way possible. And almost immediately, the pendulum of power shifted to the Amish. They had the power to seek vengeance or to forgive. They had power to take to the blogs, to smear them on Twitter, which is ironic. I know they don't use computers, right? But they had great power in that moment. But they paid a ransom. They laid that power down at great cost. They allowed themselves to be photographed. And they forgave. And they became that wall of grace for her. Friends, when we truly see the wall of grace we have in Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, serving us by spending himself and being spent for us on the cross, us power-hungry megalomaniacs who blow it time and time again, When we truly see it, we will be emptied and we will be filled by His grace. And you know what that will do? That will free us to let go of our power from having to gain, hold, and protect our own interests and to actually serve others, to fill them up in the name of Jesus Christ. Friends, that is the power of serving. Let me close this in prayer. King Jesus, for those who have suffered at the hands of the abuse of power in whatever way, I pray that you will help us walk with one another to the place of utmost suffering in the cross so that they may see you emptying yourself for them so that they may be full. Father, where we abuse power, and all of us do, May you shine the light on that. Expose us. Help us to call on you in faith and repentance. And Lord, may you warm our hearts to who you are today. Make us a church that doesn't yell louder, but that lays our life down for others, because that's what you've done for us. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.